Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history, and I tell you all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin. I use he, him pronouns. And joining me again are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Say hi, gang. Hi, I'm Jamie. She, her pronouns. I'm Laura. She, her pronouns. And I'm Ryan. He, him pronouns. Hopefully they are ready to get into some niche history, because if they are not, this will be a very quick episode indeed. So without further ado, let's dive down the rat hole. What's y'all's general consensus about boats? Do you like them? I, I like them. I really like boats, yes. Yeah. I, I enjoy boats. Boats are pretty fun. Boats are fun? Do we get seasick or? It depends on the frequency of the rocking. Then yes, sometimes. It doesn't bother me, but I remember Jamie getting sick. Yeah, I got seasick on, we took like an overnight ferry when we went to Greece and Italy, spring break of junior year. Mm. And it was like an overnight ferry, and I got a little seasick that first night, like that night we were on the ferry, but on like lakes, I don't really get seasick. I see. Yeah. What Was that the longest you'd spent on a trip, the overnight ferry? Or? Yeah, it was the longest I'd been on a boat, and it really hit me like, what, probably after dinner? No, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. it was yeah, like, it, it was like around the time we were settling in to go to bed. Yeah. We'd been on the boat for a couple of hours. Like hours? Yeah, yeah. The, the longest I've been on a boat was whale watching because mm. you got to go out and then come back. So that's a few hours. But yeah, that's the longest <laughs> I've ever been. Never really traveled anywhere on a mm. boat. Yeah. I went off the coast of Florida for a fishing trip, like on a big boat, but it was kind of like a six, eight hour, like there and back. Mm -hmm. And the ferry. But. Well, I don't know if y'all are aware. But we just passed a very famous boat anniversary. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it? Is it a? Is it an accident? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On April fifteenth, it was the one hundred and tenth anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Wow. And so I'm pretty sure that most people are at least somewhat familiar with this story, given. <laughs> how extensive the cultural legacy of the ship is. I mean, the whole movie, yeah. you know, with Leonardo DiCaprio uh, 
back in 1997 for over a decade was the highest grossing film ever um, until Avatar took over and then I'm pretty sure the Avengers Endgames have taken over mm. by them but but yeah it is very impressive but in case there is someone listening who has never heard of the <laughs> Titanic the RMS Titanic was an ocean liner and at the time it was the largest vessel in the world and on its maiden voyage in 1912 it struck an iceberg and sank which killed about 1500 of its 2200 passengers and infamously the large number of deaths is attributed to like the improper utilization of the lifeboats, uh, how few there were on board, and then how little people they packed onto them, and so. Yeah, because apparently it's tacky to have lifeboats out on the deck. Well, Only yeah. for the rich people. <laughs> but uh, I believe the Titanic is a bit too mainstream for the likes of this podcast. So, in belated honor of said anniversary, I thought it might be worthwhile to bring to y'all's attention a couple other marine time disasters whose fame might be somewhat overshadowed by the Titanic. Because what made the Titanic such, like, a cultural phenomenon? I guess, wasn't it found, like, fairly recently, and that's what made it... So, yeah, whenever it first sank off like Newfoundland or something, you know, North Atlantic. It just, it was so deep that they couldn't find it until they were actually making that movie, I think. Or the guy that, James Cameron, the director, he went down in a submarine and they found it. Yeah, like some of the footage that they use in the movie of like the wreckage is like real, like actual footage that he took. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But why it's... So big in the cultural dialogue, I it's just something people latched onto. I think it's the movie. It well, they, that the thing is, is that's not the first Titanic movie they ever made. They made Titanic oh. movies back in the fifties. Well, I think that one is the one that made it like such a bit. I mean, like there, there's memes from it now, like the, yeah. that song where they're like the, the out on the deck, penny whistle. Yeah, yeah, but like, like what? what made that movie so popular like it's a romance movie about i i think it's just like serendipitous tragedy of it maybe like the the i mean it makes for a good story the whole it's an unsinkable ship mm -hmm. and literally immediately sinks you know oh funny enough they actually use steel that wasn't rated for water that was that cold mm. and so that was part of the reason it shouldn't have sank. Learned that in your steel class? I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Actually, wait, no, it was ethics. I learned that in ethics for some reason. Wow. But, I guess uh, it was an ethical problem. It was, yeah. Oh, God, there's a whole ethical side to this, <laughs> if you want to go into that. Well, we could judge the ethics of these situations here, because yeah. Yeah, there are some things that we can judge, definitely. So, yeah, the, the history of disasters on boats... It's about as long as people have been on boats. They're pretty prone to not going the way we need them to go sometimes. 
but it really wasn't until more modern technologies developed back in like the 1600s that we came to see vessels become large enough to carry more than like 150 people and yeah you know it's easy to lose a lot of people like storms you can see multiple boats at the same time and that you know would qualify as a catastrophe um i mean like for example you got like the sinking of the spanish armada back in the 1580s and that killed like 20,000 people because it sank so many boats but you know, in order to make our comparisons a little easier, we're just going to stick to like a single ship event. We're not going <laughs> to go into uh, any large number type deals, even though these couple of events do have large life loss. Lossage, is that the word? I Probably not. <laughs> it's a word now. Yeah. That's for your throat. That's oh, yeah. oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. You, you're right, yeah. you're right. So, our first disaster that we will discuss has the distinction of being the worst maritime disaster in American history during peacetime um, and in American territory. And so, this ship's name was the Sultana, and she was a steamboat launched in January of 1863. She was 260 feet long, 42 feet wide, and had two paddle wheels on the sides that were powered by four boilers. Now, a quick note on boilers and how they work. They're filled with water, they're heated up, they generate steam, that steam then turns the paddle wheels. It's very important that the water levels in the boilers, that they be maintained because otherwise the metal develops hot spots that could weaken the structure of the boiler over time. And because there's a lot of pressure, that could be a problem. And then also, it's important to keep the exhaust flue clear of debris um, or any amount of buildup that comes from evaporating large amounts of water that's just <laughs> taken from rivers. Because also, that clogs things up, creates a lot of pressure, which is not good for that type of thing. Um, so yeah, back to the story. That was just a little aside. In April of 1865, the Sultana was on her way down to New Orleans from St. Louis. They were spreading the news of President Abraham Lincoln's recent assassination. The captain of the vessel at the time was a James Mason, and he knew that the telegraph graphs had been severely damaged during the war and so the information would not be able to travel as quickly to the deep south as he would have liked and so he was going to bring a whole bunch of newspapers with him travel down the river and spread the word of the assassination and so he left from st louis and whenever he arrived in Vicksburg, Mississippi, he docked and was approached by the city's chief quartermaster. Now, at the time, thousands of Union prisoners of war had just been released from two nearby camps 
outside of Vicksburg and were waiting in the city to return home to the north. So uh, not Union prisoner of wars, they were prisoner of wars of the Confederate who were Union soldiers. Got it. Um, the U.S. government at the time was offering any steamboat captain who would take troops up the river $2.50 per head of a soldier and $8 per officer to transport them home, which is a pretty sweet deal for <laughs> <Yeah>. 1860s. <laughs> $8? Yeah, I don't know what that converts to in modern money. It's kind of hard to do inflation calendar from. Yeah, it only goes back to like know. 19 something. Yeah. Like 1920s. Because the money was based on gold and not really unified across the United States, really. Yeah. But. Well, then it's, it's a lot. Let's, let's just assume it's, it's a, a lot. It's a lot of money. But uh, the quartermaster offered. Captain Mason, a full load of 1,400 troops if, in return, he would get a little bit of a kickback from the reward the U.S. government would provide. Uh, love that. Mason, of course, really wants some money, and so he readily agrees to pick up the troops after he has returned from New Orleans in a couple of days. Well, on April 21st, after making it about 10 hours south of Vicksburg, one of the boilers on the Sultana sprung a leak, which forced Captain Mason to return to Vicksburg for repairs, and he decided to go ahead and pick up passengers. Then, lest some other ship captain get the deal and transport all the troops home by the time he got back. So a mechanic was brought on board to examine the damage and his recommendation was to fully cut out and replace the damaged section of the boiler. But this type of repair would have taken about three plus days. And by that time, the troops would have already been transported on different vessels. And so Captain Mason decided instead to opt for temporary repairs. He had the bulge in the boiler hammered back into place and then just welded, well, not welded, but fixed a thinner metal plate on top of the weakened spot for support with rivets. Oh my God. Sounds very structurally sound. No. And <laughs> uh, these repairs only took a single day. And so the troops began loading on board to head on home. And so now I had said he was promised a load of 1,400 troops. Well, who wants to guess what the legal carrying capacity for the Sultana was? The legal? 450. 800. I'd say like 1,000. The legal limit for the... Uh, how wide the, the 260 foot long, 42 foot wide vessel? Yeah, it's pretty big. Was 376. Oh, See, that was no. close. Oh, crap. Told you. 85 of those being crew members. Oh, oh so even less. 85 people working on that boat. Yeah. You got a lot of people shoveling coal. Jeez. Keeping boilers going. Where do you put all the people at that point? You sleep on the deck, probably. I don't know. <laughs> Just out in the open. Sardines. Well, of course, this 
measly limit of 376 did not stop Captain Mason, nor the general who was in charge of loading all these POWs onto the vessel. And uh, the general in charge was actually somewhat suspicious that uh, the quartermaster and other steamboat captains would be involved in some amount of bribery and corruption. And so in order to keep things clean and clear and, you know, above any repute, he decided to award the entire POW camp's population in Vicksburg to ride home on the Sultana. Oh my. This meant that whenever the vessel left a couple days later on April 24th, how many people do you think she had on board? Oh, no. oh God. 3,000. 2,500. Um, 2,000. 2,000. Yes. There were 1,960 POWs. I got it. With 22 guards, 70 ticket-paying passengers, and the 85 crew members for a total of 2,137 people on board. I nailed it. Now, I'm no, like, math major, but I think that's a lot more than, than his legal limit. It's like six or seven times the legal Sometimes. limit? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, and we are fortunate enough to have a photo of the crew. Okay, it was basically standing room only at this point. Wow. Yeah. And how long was this trip supposed to last? It was to go all the way back up to St. Louis from Vicksburg, Mississippi. So is that like a multi-day trip? It's going to be a couple of weeks probably. A couple of oh, weeks. Oh, a couple of weeks. Standing Depending room. on how many stops you make. Wow. Standing room only for a couple of weeks. Oh my god. Again, depending on how many stops you make. Oh no. No. <laughs> no. Um, but it it'd probably be closer to about a week if you're still only stopping at essential spots. Um but yeah. It it's wow. a bit. So the ship made its way up the Mississippi over the next two days on its way to St. Louis and Next two days, they made it all the way up to Memphis, Tennessee. And on April 27th, a couple hundred, about 200 passengers offloaded in Memphis. It, there was like a large band or something. I don't know that needed people get off or whatever. But about 200 of the passengers got off and they continued to make their way to St. Louis. And on April 27th at about 2 o'clock in the morning... After unloading some fuel, they began to make progress, and the Sultana made it about seven miles north of Memphis. At this point, one of the boilers exploded, mm. which caused two others to explode almost immediately. This joint explosion completely destroyed the pilot house, leaving the vessel adrift, and caused the two smokestacks to collapse onto the middle of the ship, which then caused the upper parts of the deck to collapse, crushing hundreds of people. Um, everyone who managed to escape that soon found themselves on a ship that was lit up in flame. 
and everyone who wasn't immediately killed did their best to escape into the river. But in their weakened state, being former prisoners of war, who were held in concentration camps, basically, uh, it's very hard for them to swim. Also at this time, the Mississippi River was flooded with its annual spring floods, and it was a very severe flood this time, and the river was stretched beyond its normal banks, stretching up to three miles wide in some parts. Oh my god, wow. It took 30 minutes for another steamboat, the Bostona, to arrive and begin rescuing people. Several other ships would also arrive throughout the evening and assist in trying to rescue people. Many locals who lived along the Arkansas side of the river went out on little boats, dinghies, you know, to try to rescue as many people as they could. Others survived by clinging to the tops of submerged trees until help could arrive. And some had to float all the way back down to Memphis where dock workers were able to notice them and go out and rescue them. The Sultana herself eventually ran aground and sank at 9 a.m. And it blew up at 2. Yes. Oh, it took a while. Okay. It's a flaming wreckage of a ship just floating down the river with... <laughs> Hundreds of people in the water, screaming and very morbid scene that you can imagine. Modern estimates believe that the death toll fell between 1,100 and 200. Many of the survivors were treated in Memphis, and the city did a lot to try and raise money to, for their hospital care and to transport them home. And the last survivor of the disaster was Private Charles M. Eldridge, who died at the age of 96 on September 8th, 1941. Wow. So they're all dead at this point, obviously. Yes. Like, way, in the 1850s. way dead. Yeah, way dead. 1865. That is the tragedy of the Sultana. Wow. And uh, I heard about this one. A couple years ago, I took a road trip to Memphis, and we stopped in Vicksburg, and they have a mural painted up on the river walk of the Sultana. It, it's talked about actually a decent amount, because this, I mean, that's really the only part of the country that remembers it, because that's where it happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It comparable level of death to the Titanic. It is, yeah. On a steamboat 50 years earlier. So. And I feel like a comparable level of like avoidability too. Yeah. Well, arguably more avoidable because like I know there was a lot of like optical illusion stuff at play with the Titanic with the icebergs and visibility mm -hmm. but with yeah. this like simple solution. First of all, don't put 2,000 people on your boat. Second of all, fix it properly. I just imagine some dude with a wrench just like wang it <laughs> on a boiler and like, hey, that's good. I've been around boilers mm. and those things are scary as hell. Yeah. Like when they're working properly, let alone when one's like bulging. Mm. 
Yeah, that, mm, no. But, you know, he, he got to make, he could have made so much money. The simple calculator says about $90,000 if those were only just normal. Just normal. Values. The ethical implications of this. It's just he terrible. He could have made like 90 grand. Yeah. And it will, yeah. It... Greed is a powerful motivator. Yeah. No. Gotta respect these people's autonomy. You know, no. you gotta respect the hustle, Laura. No, hustle. these people just wanted to get home, so they didn't care if they were packed into a boat. Yeah, okay, at the same I... time. Yeah, can you imagine? You survive a prisoner of war camp just to not make it home because some doofus doesn't want to wait two days to fix his boat. Mm -hmm. But informed consent. Informed consent. How many people would have still got on the boat if they had known about the dinghy repairs? I'm sure there would have been a few. Oh, yeah. For our next event, we are going to jump forward about 50 years and head on up to our neighbor in the great white north, Canada. Mm. I love Canada. Specifically, the city of Halifax in Nova Scotia. Okay. Now, in the 1910s, uh, the big event in the world was World War One, and Canada bravely sent thousands of troops as part of the British Empire to the war effort. And Halifax just so happens to be one of the deepest ice-free ports on the Atlantic coast, and so it was the site where the Royal Canadian Navy set up its base of operations. The city was so important in practically every vessel that was part of the massive trade convoys transporting weapons, goods, and troops over to Europe made a stop in the city before coming or going. The way the port is situated is you have the ocean down southeast and then there's narrows down into a harbor, narrowed to a port that's actually called the Narrows, which is just over a thousand feet across, and then it kind of opens back up into a very large, the Bedford Basin. On one side of this channel is the city of Halifax, and across the channel is the city of Dartmouth. And ships coming into the port of Halifax would often stay in the basin while waiting for this convoy to form, and then they would all head on out. As part of the war effort also, because you have so many ships congregating in a certain space, they set up submarine nets to prevent German U-boats from getting into the harbor and doing basically a Pearl Harbor. But uh, now that I have set the stage, I will introduce you to the vessel SS Immo. Now, the Immo was a vessel from the Netherlands, and in late, eight, in late 1917, she was making her way to New York City to pick up supplies for the war effort. And on December 3rd, Immo arrived for a quick inspection and refueling stop in the Halifax Harbor. 
She waited two days in the Bedford Basin while fuel was loaded onto the ship. And on December 5th, Immo was given the all clear to leave the harbor. But by the time that all the fuel had been loaded, the submarine nets had already been raised up for the night. And so she would have to wait to leave till the morning. Also on the evening of December 5th, the French vessel SS Montblanc was making its way into the harbor to join up with an outgoing convoy. The ship was fully loaded with TNT, picric acid, and the fuel's benzol and gun cotton. Now, of course, TNT is explosive. Picric acid is also explosive. Yeah. Uh, benzol is basically like gasoline. <laughs> and gun cotton is highly flammable fibrous material that was used in grenades. Sweet. A perfect combination. Yes. It's a uh, very dangerous cargo. <laughs> Effectively making the ship one big grenade. Well, could possibly be if someone's not careful. <laughs> now, the Mont Blanc also so happened to arrive at after the submarine nets had been raised, and so she anchored outside of the harbor waiting to go in on the next morning. So we arrive on the morning of December 6, 1917. At 7.30 in the morning, the MO was given the clearance to leave the bay. Now it's important to note that the proper etiquette for leaving Halifax Harbor is that you were supposed to pass ships port to port, meaning you keep the left side of your ship facing the left side of everyone else's ship. Drive on the right side of the road, basically. Yeah. Well, the Immo was very much in a hurry to leave the basin in order to make up for the lost time of having to wait overnight in the harbor. And so the pilot of the vessel was a William Hayes, and he was piloting the MO much faster than he probably should have. And because of her speed, the ship encountered a couple of other vessels and was forced to shift over to the Dartmouth side of the channel, which meant that it would be passing ships starboard to starboard or oh, no. right to right. Uh, so yeah, basically, because it was going so fast, it had to turn to where it was driving on the wrong side of the road. It was at this same time that the Mont Blanc was also making its way into the harbor. And a man named Francis Mackey was piloting the ship into the harbor, and he was doing so very carefully because he has very dangerous mm -hmm. cargo on board. Mm -hmm. Mackey first noticed uh, that about three-fourths of a mile away down the channel that the emo is on the wrong side of the channel. And uh, as they were getting closer, he began to notice that if the Mont Blanc would stay on its current course, the correct course, that the emo was going to cut it off. So Mackie 
blew the ship's horn to signal that, hey, I'm driving here. This I have the right of way. Stay in your lane. Where are the double yellow lines? Yeah, right. Uh, Hayes promptly responded, driving the Imo. He blew his whistle to indicate that no, he was not going to change his course. Whoa. Mackie, upon hearing this, ordered the Montblanc to turn off its engines and alter its course closer to the Dartmouth side, basically go closer to their side of the channel to show his intention to pass port to port. And then he then blew his whistle again to say, I have the right of way. Change your direction. Again, the MO responded with the signal that no, they were not going to change direction. Oh my god. Realizing at this point that they were now too close to change directions even if they wanted to, both vessels had shut off their engines and the momentum continued to carry them forward ever so slowly towards each other. <laughs> Mackie, driving a very explosive ship, decided that it would be too risky to run his ship aground. And so he decided to turn even further to the starboard side of the Narrows, basically turn in the opposite direction in order to try to get as... Well, he couldn't go even further to the starboard side of the Narrow, closer to the shore... So he made the decision to instead turn his ship as hard port as he could and hopefully cross the bow of the Imo in time before they could collide with each other. Initially, they managed to pass each other and the ships slowed to the point and passed each other to the point where they are almost completely parallel. In an attempt to avoid nicking the back end of the Mont Blanc, the pilot of the Imo suddenly signaled with their horns that they were going to put the ship into reverse and hope that they could back up far enough that they could, the Mont Blanc could continue to coast forward and crisis would be averted. Well, unfortunately, because the Imo did not have any cargo and because of the way the propellers on the ship worked, when it kicked its engines into reverse it caused the vessel to swing ever so slightly to the right, oh, thus striking the Mont Blanc. No. <laughs> no. Now, this damage wasn't very severe. It only knocked over several barrels of benzol, which spilled over the deck and into the ship's hold. And after a few moments, the Emo's engines kicked in and the ship separated. But the friction from the separation caused some sparks to fly up, which then ignited all the benzol that had just spilled mm, on the Mont Blanc. Mm. Of course it of did. Of course. Oh, God. This collision occurred at 8.45 a.m. Mackie, knowing what his ship was carrying and that it was now on fire, immediately gave the order to abandon ship, and the crew promptly did so. The crewless ship then continued to coast itself until it beached on Pier 6 of the Halifax shipyard, still on fire. 
several firefighting vessels arrived to try and put out the fire as well as just some local vessels um and the crew of the Mont Blanc tried to warn the people about what was on the cargo, but in the chaos of everything, their words did not seem to travel far. The excitement of a burning ship in the local canal began to attract a large crowd of spectators. Oh, God. Including children on their way to school. Oh, just go to school. Don't, yeah, don't worry about that. But there's ships on fire. That sounds like it's way more exciting. Fun than oh my god, um, so much more fun. I do have to admit, if I were on my way to school and I heard that there was a ship on fire in mm -hmm. the nearby port, I would indeed go watch the ship burn. Well, from a distance, from a safe distance. Well, you don't know what's on it. You, you don't know what a safe distance is. From a fire, like pretty far away. Well. After about 20 minutes of burning, at 9.04 a.m., the cargo of the Mont Blanc exploded. This explosion completely destroyed the ship, and the shockwave radiated out at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour, and the fireball that it was created reached a heat of more than 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow which is the temperature at the surface of the sun. Yeah, no casually. The explosion completely destroyed 400 acres of downtown Halifax. <laughs> the Windows were shattered over 60 miles away, and the explosion was heard over 100 miles away on Prince Edward's Island. Some even claim to hear it as far away as Massachusetts. Yeah, so these kids, I don't think these kids could have found a safe distance. Oh, kids. The smoke cloud from the explosion was over two miles high. The force how, of the... How do we know how hot the flame was? By, you can probably say, you know that certain things melt at uh, certain okay, temperatures, yeah. I guess. I guess, yeah. And you can probably just do extrapolative math, you know. Guessing. TNT <laughs> yeah. blow up real hot. It does, yes. Um, the explosion was so powerful that it temporarily exposed the bottom of the harbor. Uh. And the water then rushed to fill in this massive hole, creating a 60-foot tsunami. The tsunami picked up the Imo and deposited her on the Dartmouth side of the shoreline. In all, about 1,600 people were immediately killed, either from being vaporized from the blast or from being impaled on things like trees and buildings. Oh, God. Oh, impaled by a tree? Really? About 300 more people would later die from the tsunami or the massive fires that spread throughout the city from overturned ovens and molten metal falling from the sky. Wow. Every building within a one and a half mile radius, about 12,000 total, were either completely destroyed or severely damaged. Now, the death toll could have been much worse had it not been for the heroic efforts of a Mr. Vincent Coleman. Coleman was a railroad worker at the shipyard about 750 feet from Mont Blanc. He saw the fire 
and learned quickly of the ship's cargo. And he began to try and evacuate whenever he remembered that there was a passenger train making its way into Halifax that morning. And that was scheduled to arrive within a few minutes. And so he elected to remain at his post and send out telegrams warning trains not to enter the city because the ship was about to explode. At 8.55, he sent out the message that we're not 100% sure what it is. It kind of variates what people, what the quote says, but it was something along the lines of hold the train ammunition ship of fire in harbor making for Pier 6 will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye. Fortunately, the train that he was fearing would arrive was running late at the time and not had was nowhere close to the city. And because of his efforts, Coleman is credited with saving the lives of over 300 people. Wow. He himself mm -hmm. would die in the explosion. What a hero. Man. In addition to the over... 1,700 deaths, 9,000 people were injured, and 6,000 people were made homeless. Total damages in the city amounted to 35 million Canadian dollars, which today is about 607 million Canadian dollars, or 481 million American dollars. Wow. And to this day, this event is the largest man-made explosion barring nuclear explosions. Wow. Was was nuclear stuff before or after this after. happened? Okay. It was the largest man-made explosion prior for like 30 years prior to the invention of the atomic bomb. Jesus. And even with atomic bombs, this is still the largest non-nuclear explosion ever. Wow. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. That's uh Oh, it's really depressing. <laughs> that poor so, guy. Yeah, what happened to the uh, the captain of the uh, the ship that caused this? Basically, oh, I want to say the entirety of the crew of, like, basically most of the crews on either ship died. That's why we only have, like, the hearsay and stuff. Mm -hmm. More people survived on the Mont Blanc, which is why we have a more complete story of the events that happened, like their timeline of events. Mm -hmm. But uh, both of the pilots died, I believe. Mm. So. So it's pretty much all because of that the one captain. I mean, had he gotten to leave, you know, had they gotten to leave the night before, they wouldn't have been going so fast. So they went. It's just a. It's just a bad call by the guy because he yeah. wanted to get out of the port faster. Yep. I'm sure there's like regulations and stuff now that you can't hold all the ingredients to something that powerful on one ship. Well, even back then, like before the war effort, the Mont Blanc would not have been able to enter the harbor with all the stuff that they were carrying. But because it's wartime, yeah, you, you got to loosen the rules a little bit in order to contribute to the war effort. So, just a bad deal all around. Mm. 
But uh, of course, there are plenty of more stories out there. Some that include much higher death totals. But uh, we're running out of time for this episode, so we'll stop here today. I heard about the Halifax explosion before this, but uh, from like researching into nukes and stuff, like it's up there, com comparable. But I hadn't taken the time to truly investigate it beforehand. And uh, some truly harrowing stuff. And there's like a memorial monument there today in downtown Halifax and stuff. But um, yeah, it's really kind of insane. So I've never heard of either of these. Yeah, me either. Like they just don't, they don't teach that. Yeah. There needs to be a movie made. <laughs> Out of the two of them, which should they make a movie of? I think the TNT one. Yeah. The Halifax explosion. I think yeah. that's one that would like do better in theaters because mm. big explosions, big boom. They could have the drama of like the one ship captain being like, "Oh my god, they're gonna hit us! Oh my god, they're gonna hit us!" Mm. Are they? They are. Just yeah, they, they're going to. <laughs> That'd be cool. I could also see it easily being ruined with a, I don't know, just like too slow of action where it's just like too much tension and they're just sitting there and they're going about two miles an hour and you gotta you gotta sit there wait for wait to see what happens wait 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 and you hear a little dink dink sound yeah a little dink collide. sound <laughs> yeah but then the suspense the suspense man but hopefully you all enjoyed today's episode and it wasn't too depressing <laughs> other um, than the one guy the the one that saved the all the telegram yeah other than that that was a good addition yeah that was a good mention but uh, I put sources down in the show notes if people want to go further looking into these two events or any of the other varieties of maritime disasters out there our instrumental music is by Mountaineer you can find their stuff on upbeat.io as always, we want to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If we have any listeners from Mississippi or Halifax that, you know, let us know if we missed anything. And everyone else, if you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi... You can join them by reaching out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with me. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.